The RTHK English News Service brings you the latest news throughout the day right here on your radio, our homepage, Facebook and the RTHK News app. And now we're on Instagram. Up-to-date news, videos, feature stories and podcasts all at your fingertips. Search RTHK English News and follow us right now. Catching up with the very latest local and international news just got even easier. On your radio, our homepage, Facebook, the app and now Instagram. RTHK English News. Good morning. This is Radio 3. We now present the second part of Mind Matters, introduced by Carol Mang. Morning and welcome to episode two of Radio 3's new series of talks and lectures, Mind Matters. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll be diving into the ocean to take a look at a type of marine animal. Yes, it is an animal that could easily be mistaken for a bag of water. If you come across the wrong kind, you won't make that mistake twice. Even though they don't have a heart or a brain, they have been around longer than the dinosaurs. Of course. I'm talking about the jellyfish. Interestingly, human impact on the ocean is providing conditions in which jellies can outcompete other marine creatures. However, we have so little understanding of jellies that a lot of people in the city are scared of them. The Hong Kong Jellyfish Project is a citizen initiative that seeks to collect more information about jellyfish found in Hong Kong waters. Now let's listen to the project founder John Tarancini, who has recently given a Zoom talk for the Royal Geographical Society about the biology and ecology of jellies. So jellyfish are thought to uh, or are commonly portrayed in the news media as taking over the oceans, as you know, our future is gelatinous, or our jellyfish are attacking power stations, or jellyfish attacked people on a beach. Uh, these kinds of things. But this kind of this kind of perception is incorrect. Uh, the idea that jellyfish are taking over the ocean is there's just not enough research done. There's not enough long-term data on this to determine whether this is actually correct. And in fact, uh, I'll say that a lot. And probably when you all ask questions as well, uh, many of the answers will probably involve some form of more research is needed. Uh, because we just don't know enough about jellyfish at this point. Also, when you're reading some of these uh, some of these news stories and you're thinking about jellyfish, uh, a little bit of critical thinking is necessary. Jellyfish don't attack; they have, they don't have brains. They're not ganging up on things and bringing them down like a pride of lions. So think about that. We, you know, when uh, when you do read these stories, you got to think about that the jellyfish are not getting together. They're not attacking. They're not. Uh, they're not doing these kinds of things. So other things about jellyfish that give that perception are they can take advantage of degraded environments. So impacted environments that might be too polluted for other life forms, fish and those things uh, to live. Jellyfish are able to live because they are mostly water. So mostly what's in the water is inside the jellyfish as well. But a key point to note here is that just because you see jellyfish, it does not mean that the environment is bad. Jellyfish are a natural part of every environment and you're going to see them everywhere and they belong there. Uh, jellyfish are in 
all of the world's oceans everywhere you can find some form of jellyfish even though they do have different ranges there and uh the jellyfish typically get seen by people and get reported in the news when they show up in these large groups so these large groups here you might have a swarm and this is where they're coming together for some sort of purpose and that would be an apparent bloom all right so they're not actually growing the population so much but they're just showing up in one area and people go oh my god there's a whole lot of jellyfish right here then there's an aggregation and that might be where they're moved together by tides by storms and a big group of them get caught into a bay area get pushed into a bay area and then people see a, a large grouping of them and it's of note and the last bit is a bloom and this true bloom this is a rapid growth in the population and as part of our life cycle which you see right here so jellyfish have numerous different kinds of life cycles and the most popular is on the on the side of your screen right there but they can also clone some of them are hermaphrodites uh so they can some some of them can just create more uh and they can clone in 13 different ways as, as dr gershwin says here so numerous ways jellyfish can reproduce the most popular is on the side of your screen here where you have the adult jellyfish they get together into that group and release sperm and egg into the water those get together and start forming planula which become polyps those polyps then find a hard surface to land on some of the hard surfaces that are very popular are things like human-made surfaces so you might have piers docks uh the plastics on the undersides of fish farms are actually uh, thought to be really popular so that would be some great research to do uh, at, a, at a different time is to find out uh, you know, if jellyfish are on the bottom side, fish farms that are all over Hong Kong. So once there are those polyps, they sit and they wait for the appropriate time to, to do that true bloom, to do that population growth right there. And you can see those blooms would be caused by food triggers, by environmental variables. They wait for conditions to be right. And they can wait for quite some time. They can wait for over a year, depending on species. And then those polyps will separate out. Uh, so those pizzas would then go out and be, they're the little baby jellyfish. And then what they do is all they do is eat and eat and eat and become large jellyfish. And jellyfish eat up and down the food chain. So imagine this. You've got things that like to eat jellyfish, but the jellyfish is capable of eating their young. So those baby fish, jellyfish can eat them. So now there's fewer predators. Also, that fish is eating other things, but the jellyfish eats those as well with those big trailing tentacles. So the jellyfish can eat the food of its predators and can eat the young of its predators. So now there are fewer predators and there are more jellyfish. And so this is one of the ways it's possible for them to take over ecosystems commonly thought everybody thinks about turtles as being the the main predator of jellyfish however about 167 species of jelly or, or of fish are known to eat jellies and some of these are commercially important ones swordfish and tunas and things like that are known to eat jellyfish so if you eat seafood you've probably eaten stuff that eats jellyfish there and even after they're dead jellyfish are important because they when they do these die-offs they fall to the bottom of the uh, of the sea 
and then creatures eat them. So some researchers, this is a short clip from researchers in Norway, and they took a large number of dead jellyfish, put them down onto the bottom of the ocean, and then videoed it. And over a three-hour period or so, this uh, large number of jellies was just eaten up. And I think at, if I remember the article correctly, at about peak time, they had over a thousand individual uh, animals on there eating these jellyfish. So you can see just exactly how important these jellyfish are to uh, not only carbon cycles by pushing them down to the bottom, but also to um, having uh, food for part of the food web of undersea, undersea environments there. Jellies also provide homes for things. So you can see that uh, a bunch of fish inside the tentacles of one of the species of jellyfish that's around here, Cyane and Ozakiai. And so those fish will live inside the tentacles because other larger fish will stay away from the jellyfish knowing that they'll get stung. And so these floating nurseries will help protect the fish as long as the fish doesn't get caught themselves. And as the fish grows and grows, sometimes even eating the jellyfish as it uses the jellyfish for protection. And then it will go off and become an adult fish there. Jellies also are known to have uh, excuse me, <laughs> a symbiotic algae in here, zooxanthellae, and this is something that uh, is also in corals, helps give them some of the colors there, where this symbiotic algae it lives inside, and just like plants do, it will photosynthesize and then share some of the energy with its host. So the algae gets this uh, gets protection from the jellyfish, and the jellyfish gets energy from the algae there. You can also see that uh, all these other species of, uh, all these other creatures are known to live on jellies, eat jellies, uh, sometimes even just it's thought that they use them for transportation, which is, uh, which is rather amusing. It's like catching the bus and a uh, free trip. Jelly senses are much stronger and better than we think. Uh, you know, they're not just these silly bags of water that they might be, uh, because the water inside them is very similar to the water outside of them. They're able to detect chemicals, pressure, uh, changes in pH, salinity, all of that. And, uh, then they can make decisions where to go based on that. And, uh, these factors, salinity and pressure and temperature can actually help limit some of the ranges of different species of jellyfish. So they're much more sensitive than we think. They also have these basic eyes, the ropelia, along the sides. Most of these are very basic. They detect light. More advanced ones might detect movement. However, cubozoans, there's some species of cubozoans. Uh, these are the box jellies, and the box jellies are the ones that most people are afraid of. They think that their eyes might be good enough to see things uh, and chase them and hunt them, actively hunt them. Also, they've been known to, there's an article uh, that uh, shared on one of the groups about uh, jellies that were thought to be able to use trees as celestial, or sorry, terrestrial navigation. So they're in the water, their eyes are good enough to look up, see trees, and then use them as landmarks for when they're moving around. Last cool feature of jellyfish senses, they have something like inside our ears. So when we move around inside our ears, we know which orientation we're in, upside down, looking left, right. 
And jellyfish have something like that as well. Because they are in turbulent ocean environments, they might get tossed around by waves, winds, currents, anything like that, and would otherwise get disoriented. But these statoliths, and this is just a chamber, like a hair-filled chamber inside the very edge of the of the bell of the jellyfish, the outside of the jellyfish, and inside is a little crystal. And as the jellyfish moves around, that crystal brushes up against the hairs on the sides of the chamber and tells you which way that jellyfish is oriented. So a super cool feature, helps to keep oriented and get back on track. So some cool jellyfish facts. Jellyfish were, uh, one, one species was responsible for the, uh, for a Nobel Prize. Excuse me. The, uh, the researcher was able to synthesize a green fluorescent protein. And you can see that mouse on the, uh, on the side of your screen, uh, is, uh, is a promotional example of that. Usually what this, uh, fluorescent protein is used for is, is in, uh, biochemical research biomolecular research and they inject these into cells and then they use that fluorescence as a way of finding out the cell processes. So super cool, super intense stuff, which is why the, the Nobel Prize was awarded for it. They also use uh, jellyfish collagen uh, for scaffolding, for tissue growth. So you can form a shape, you can then grow tissue over that and that tissue can then be put in top, into people. And because it's uh, because it's a collagen, natural collagen, it doesn't react with that tissue. There's also edible species of jellyfish. Technically, all jellyfish could be considered edible. However, uh, not all of them have a good crunch. Not all of them have much of a flavor. Uh, I don't know if any of you eat jellyfish, but it's mostly the the flavor that's on it that uh, that is the the attraction. So it's a lot of it is the feel of the jellyfish. And there are experts out there who will say, you know, this jellyfish is good and this jellyfish is not so good for eating. And this is a multi-million dollar industry. So uh, Asia is the biggest market. China is one of the biggest markets for edible jellyfish, but this industry can stretch all the way to the Gulf of Mexico over uh, towards the U.S. And uh, species can be caught there, processed, and sent to, uh, sent to this side. of One of the one of the edible species is, is one of the more popular ones here in the more common ones here in Hong Kong as well. So then uh, they're also being looked at for nutritional supplements. People are looking at them, uh, you know, jellyfish chips, these sorts of things. But since they're mostly water, there's not a ton of nutritional value to them. There are proteins and a few minerals and things, um, but there are other things that could be better. But people are looking to, to them as a potential food source because there are so many of them. And because they can proliferate so easily, it's very easy to grow lots of them really fast. So it seems like it should be a good source of food or some other use. Uh, the coolest thing, last bit here, Turritopsis. This is one of the famous jellyfish that gets called the uh, immortal jellyfish. So not totally immortal because it can still be eaten. It can still be damaged and killed by uh, physical processes. But... If it's damaged in part of its life cycle, it can then revert some of that life cycle. It can go back to earlier stages of that life cycle, and then it can uh, repair itself and grow back up towards the adult. Um, so jellyfish do not have brains. They don't have brains at all, but they do have, uh, they're called nerve nets. So much like you know our nerves, we feel things. 
Jellyfish have overlapping nerve nets. So some of them are used for movement, some of them for senses, some for, for moving things around within their bodies. Uh, so they have these three overlapping nerve nets, but no central, you know, no brain, no central nervous system like we do. Um, so they're quite simple, but complex. And then uh, why do they have different colors? Does it relate to, to UV? So the coloration would be similar to uh, to like to like us, you know, any kind of coloration, these different species. I mean, there is that one species that I talked about, Mastigius, that has the symbiotic algae in it that would have those different colors based on the algae. Uh, other than that, it would just be like, like us having different colors between species and things. If they sense danger, how can they escape uh, and they move with the water? So jellies, people think that jellies are... Uh, subject to the water and wherever the water moves, they have to move with it. And this is not quite correct, especially for the bigger ones. They can fight some of these currents. So, uh, you know, like one or two K, uh, per, per hour kind of current, uh, these jellies can move against it. Also jellies, sometimes, you know, in, in very deep water, you might have a current going this way up top and a current going this way down below. The so jellies will go up into this current and move this way. And then they might dive. And they go into a different current and move a different way. So they can actually ma manipulate their environment that way. Or I should say move through their environment that way and, uh, and escape danger. So uh, even if you're, if you're out, there was uh, somebody who told me they're, they're paddling with a swim group. So the swimmers are behind and this kayaker is up in front of them. The kayaker is moving ahead. And when the kayaker saw a jellyfish, he just tap it with his paddle. And he tapped it with the paddle, and then the jellyfish would just dive. So this is our way of escaping. Is typically they will, they will dive. So if you capture a jellyfish in a bag or a bucket, you'll see it go to the bottom and pulse because it's trying to dive deep. So he would protect the swimmers, and it doesn't take much. He just tap it gently with the paddle, and not trying to damage it, but it would just startle it, and it would dive down below, and then the swimmers could pass over safely. So that's how they typically try to escape. Listening to Mind Matters. The founder of Hong Kong Jellyfish Project, John Terencini, told us the basic biology and living habitat of jellyfish in the city. Now listen carefully and learn what you can do if you see a jellyfish or get stung by it. This is a recent report that showed up in Hoi Ha, Hoi Ha Wan there. Uh, so, you know, different things are, are being spotted in the waters. It's just a matter of people looking for them and recording them. Stings. So this is where everybody is uh, is interested, and this is where most people are concerned about. And and not all jellyfish will have stings that can harm harm you or harm human beings in general. Uh, although there's estimated about 150 million stings annually worldwide, and that's just because more and more people are getting into the water. And jellyfish are in the water, part of the natural part of that environment, and so there are these interactions. Here in Hong Kong, we do not uh, currently have records of species of jellyfish that can kill you. There are species that I mentioned before, Cyanea, Nozakii, and those that can do a lot of damage, but there aren't ones that can kill you. The hospital authority, the Hong Kong Hospital Authority, does not uh, currently record sting information. 
but uh, likely most things are taken care of on site by lifeguards or other people around. The Hong Kong Jellyfish Project is looking to record sting information. So anybody you know gets stung, you can share some of that sting information on the website. I'll talk about that a little later. Uh, and one of the project goals here, other places, uh, particularly in Australia, they've done some research pairing jellyfish occurrences with environmental data and have found that in some ways jellyfish can be predictable. So, for example, you might have you know, here in Hong Kong, you might have east wind blowing through in April and therefore on uh, east facing beach like Lantau's uh, lower Chongsha, you might have more of those Rocalema hispidum showing up. This was a trend that happened last year. This kind of thing requires long-term data. So just one year's data is not enough. You need to need to go for several years before this kind of information can, can make sense. Um, then once you know these kinds of information, you can find out, are there other places that activities can happen? Uh, can you go inside swim nets, outside swim nets? Swim nets are not the best protection against jellyfish. A, you know, some of the jellies are small enough, they'll go right through it. But also even with the bigger ones, if they rub up against the net, those tentacles can break off and, and slide through the net. And those tentacles are still active and still sting, even though they're separated from the jellyfish. Even stranded jellyfish, their stings can still be active there. And I'll talk about how that works in just a moment here. So you have to be careful. Also, here in Hong Kong, the swim nets don't go all the way to the bottom. They don't exclude everything. You know, the, the jellyfish low enough down can certainly go right underneath it. Other places people will cover up. You might have divers that are covered up in our wetsuits. You might have swimmers that use lycra suits, but even that is not 100% protection. Uh, there was a story, a news story about a person in Australia who was fully protected, dive suit, jumped off a boat, got stung by a jellyfish in the face because that was the unprotected area, spent a couple of days in the hospital. It was one of the more dangerous ones in Australia. So it's entirely possible that uh, even that uh, little bits of exposed skin can can expose you to stings. So you can see that jellyfish can, it's, it's entirely possible for jellyfish to do quite a bit of damage to your skin and even over long term. And how they do this is using these stinging sites. So on the long trailing tentacles, there's the thousands and thousands of little sites. And each one of these sites will have something like this nematocyst over here. And this is a chamber with a coiled harpoon inside a little bit of a trigger. And that trigger can be set off by pressure. It can be set off by changes in pressure, osmotic pressure even, chemical changes, things like this can all trigger this. And so it's very sensitive. And then that shoots out a harpoon and injects toxins in. I've had people tell me before when they feel something of brush up against them, they immediately try and you know brush it off as fast as they can. And, and really you can't react in fewer than 12 milliseconds to get away from something. So if you do brush up against it, it's entirely possible that you can, you can get stung. And this last image is pretty cool, being able to see that, uh, that jellyfish venom being injected. So what can you do about this? Um, if anybody out there has peed on a jellyfish sting, this is the wrong thing to do, all right? Don't do that. It doesn't work. It's nasty. Uh, urine is a waste product. So now you're putting a bodily waste product into an open wound. Um, don't do it. It's hilarious. It's funny. It's a popular myth. Uh, but don't do it. 
there's way better things that you can do. And the first thing you can do is to be, to get out of the water, get away from the stings, get away from getting stung even more, get out of, away from the jellyfish onto a boat, onto the shore, whatever you need to do. Then washing the area in seawater. And you want to do it in seawater because that's the water it was just in. Freshwater. Remember I said that osmotic pressure can, can trigger nematocysts. If you use fresh water to try to wash these off, it's entirely possible that you'll trigger more stings and you'll get more toxins into the wounds there. Uh, then you can wash that off with seawater. You can use vinegar solution. This is a popular one that's used, but it doesn't deactivate for all species. So more research is needed. Remember that phrase, more research is needed on which species it works for and which ones it doesn't. Then you can remove tentacles with tweezers. They used to say hard-edged card, but if you've got a hard-edged object that you're scraping down a wounded area, uh, you might trigger more of these with pressure. And then a hot water soap. Hot water soap as hot as you can handle it. I've heard as high as 40 degrees Celsius, but basically as hot as you can handle it, as long as you can handle it. And that's going to help deactivate some types of venom. And then the Hong Kong Hospital Authority recommends at that point that you just treat the symptoms. If you have pain, you know, take some pain relievers. If you have swelling, you can take some antihistamines, those sorts of things. Don't rub the area. You'll trigger more things. Don't put a pressure bandage on it. You'll trigger more nematocysts. All of these other home remedies don't really work. There is something out there, uh, a lotion that, uh, this is a commercial lotion, Save Sea Lotion. And it's, uh, it was created, scientists took, um, if you know the, the clownfish that lives in anemones, then there's a mucus that protects them. And they took this mucus and they analyzed it. And then they helped use that mucus as a way of creating this lotion. So there's a physical barrier. And then they used that lotion as a chemical barrier for these nematocysts as well. So in the lab test, it was very effective. I've had swimmers here tell me that it's not effective, that it's rubbish and they still get stung. I'd love to do some further research on that. Once again, more research is needed. So about the Hong Kong jellyfish project itself, uh, Hong Kong is a research gap in jellyfish studies. Research in large species is on the mainland up in the Northeast. You got the Yellow Sea, the Bohai, those areas, and internationally, so the west coast of the U.S. and in California, you've got Washington State is a big area for jellyfish research. And then the Mediterranean is also one of the biggest areas for jellyfish research in the world because it's a contained area and there's so many countries around it. And it's quite a, a comparatively shallow area that a lot of research can be done there. Uh, but Hong Kong's missing. So this is why I started the Hong Kong Jellyfish Project so that we can look at jellyfish research here. Hopefully we can record species, maybe even find new species records, examine the environmental conditions, find out if there's a way that we can use this information to enhance the safety of water sports groups, look after swimmers, divers, those sorts, and then maybe even examine some of the blooms and their causes around here. This uh, Hong Kong jellyfish project was based on the a campaign that was started in the Mediterranean by an Italian professor. And outcomes for that was that they published research articles, they even found new species records and described the new species. So I have a lot of hope that uh, this project is is able to do the same. 
In fact, uh, hopefully in uh, a week or so, I'll find out if we're going to be able to publish our first article on uh, new species sightings here. I'll talk about that in a second as well. So citizen science, and this is exactly what it sounds like. Eh. So citizen science, by Citizen Science Asia, the definition of that is it's about public participation in science for the public good. And this means that anybody can do it. So anybody from you know five years old up to 90 years old can participate in citizen science. And a lot of these projects are data gathering. So you know there's only one of me. You know right now there's 18 people on this talk, and uh, so there's many more of you that could all go out and look for jellyfish. And so what the Hong Kong Jellyfish Project is doing is looking at the presence, abundance, and distribution of jellyfish in Hong Kong's waters. So any of you that see jellyfish, you can take a photo, you can record some simple information like the date, time, where you are, and then submit those observations through the website, through iNaturalist, or even social media on there. And uh, people do that from even, you don't even have to be a water sports person. You know, divers are popular, kayakers send a lot of photos, uh, but people send photos from central piers. Just before you take a ferry, take a look over the side, take a photo. One of the coolest ones was uh, someone was taking a gondola car from the Tongchung Yongping 360 up, left the Tongchung station, looked down 100 feet in the air, took a photo of jellyfish and sent it to me there. So you can even be flying through the air and still submit jellyfish images. That was John Terencini, the founder of Hong Kong Jellyfish Project. I'm Carol Mack. Join me next Sunday morning for more Mind Matters.